<laughs> we love talking about orange wine. I think this will actually be our third podcast uh, about orange wine. Each one has been a little bit different than the last. Um, the first one, I think we talked about orange wine versus rosé. This one, we want to just kind of back up a bit and give an overview of exactly what it is. Um, I even have a lovely poem that I wrote about it. So, yeah, let's start there, actually. <laughs> okay, so An Ode to Orange Wine by Holly Berrigan. I apologize in advance for subjecting you all to this. Orange wine, you are my friend. When I drink you, I do not want it to end. Your gorgeous color is so bright. Your fruit and florals do delight. I am happy you're back on the scene, especially when you are clean. Rosé, white, and red are great, but you I most appreciate. Thank you for being orange. Sadly, nothing rhymes with orange. The end. Ta-da! <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Overall, I think that's obviously a lovely poem, Holly. Really nice job there. But what's cool is that I think that you do really get into some other, some kind of nuanced points about orange wine in here, specifically about, you know, aromatics and clean winemaking um, versus kind of like, you know, the opposite. Um, so I think that overall, this is a really lovely poem, and I think you should definitely do more. <laughs> we'll see. All right. So let's talk a bit about orange wine. What is it? How is it made? Where do you find it? Why is it orange? All of these things. Cool. So what is it? So orange wine, the easiest way to explain orange wine to someone um, it, that has never seen it before is that it's a white wine made like a red wine. And all that means is that it gets its orange color from spending time on the skins. So red grapes spend time on their skins and the wine turns red. Otherwise, if you have seen, you know, Blanc de Noir champagne uh, with Pinot Noir, it's not actually red, it's white, which means that they'd never had the um, juice touch the skins. Exactly. So basically what you're doing with a orange wine is um, rather than kind of pressing it immediately to make sure that you're not getting any of that skin contact, I guess it's not just skins too, it's like seeds and stems and all kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, could be um, any of that. You're, you're letting it macerate, and that can be anywhere from up to you know a couple hours if you just want like a very light... Um, kind of add a little bit of depth and complexity up to, you know, months, um, which will add a lot of tannin from the seeds and from the stems. It'll um, make it a lot darker and give it kind of a bolder, almost like a red-ish uh, profile. Yeah, because uh, it gets the tannin. the tannin from the stems and the skins comes off. And so that's why I always recommend if people you know, don't really like white wines, but they love red wines. Orange is a good in-between uh, and something that you should definitely try. So that's the quickest and easiest description of it. Obviously, it can be made in a number of ways, and we can talk about that in a minute. Um, but let's first talk about where it comes from. When did it start? It seems so new. You know, you don't normally hear about orange wines, and it's still pretty small amount that you would find in a store, if any at all. Um, but it turns out it is so old. Yeah, what's funny is that it's actually one of the oldest winemaking styles in the world. Um, we believe it started in Georgia, the country that's kind of like... Right below know, Russia. Map. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what they do there is that they use something called a quevery. Quevery? I never know how to say it. Quevery? Quevery. Someone, someone let us know. Yeah, and what that is is it's a style of 
clay vessel um, that kind of has like a pointy bottom. And uh, do they always bury it? Uh, I'm pretty sure they always bury it, or traditionally, at least, they always bury it. Yeah, so they take this clay pot and they bury it in the ground that has kind of this pointy end, and that's where they let their wines kind of rest and macerate. Um, The pointy bit, I think, is so that, like, sediment and stuff like that can kind of float to the bottom, and it's easier to, I guess, naturally filter it, if you will. Yeah, and the reason they would put it in the ground is if you think back to 6000 BC, it's not exactly like there was uh, any refrigerated rooms, thus the uh, temperature of the earth would have been a little bit cooler down there, and it would have allowed the wine to naturally regulate itself um, to start and finish its fermentation in the, the best way possible versus leaving it in what could potentially be a very hot room in the summer. Exactly, and uh, the clay pot also kind of gives it a little bit of texture, gives it a little bit more um body i guess you would say versus using something like stainless steel or you know whatever you might typically be using now and i guess are mostly are georgian wines mostly or georgian grapes sorry mostly white is that why they've been doing orange wine for so long they definitely have red grapes as well and they've become most famous for um orange wines within the last couple of years uh, I think they have, I was reading uh, Alice Firing's book about her trip to Georgia and they have like a thousand or more something uh, grape varietals and basically the history of Georgian winemaking is a really sad one because they, and actually they kind of saved and very secretly preserved uh, the orange winemaking and winemaking in your home uh, throughout the Soviet era because they used to plant, everyone would have a small plot, they would plant for their home and they would have, you know, all different types of varieties. And then when they came under Soviet rule, um, they basically decided that there were four grapes they were going to plant. They pulled everything up uh, to streamline the process. Everyone took their grapes to a co-op, but luckily, you know, small groups of people were still keeping some of those vines and keeping some of that home winemaking technically illegally. Um, and that's where they're now, you know, post 1990, where they're now um, resetting all of those, you know, historic ways that they made wine back up. So you'll see slowly, according to Alice Firing, we haven't been there yet, but we're going to go in May. Um, you'll see them actually, you know, like resetting up all of their old vineyards with the traditional grapes that were there before. Exactly. And the grapes that they're using are kind of like native grapes that, you know, you might not have heard of, I guess, Raxatelli. Yeah, that's the only one I honestly know how to pronounce. I'm scared to try and pronounce any of the rest of them. Exactly. (laughs) There's a lot. Um, And then one thing that I like to note about uh, the way that they make the wine in the Kvervi, Kvervi, whatever it is, um, they today will still make it in that style and they will literally bottle um, the wine f- directly from the curvy. So like Nick said, it's pointed on the bottom and uh, the sediment deposits there, uh, but they will still bottle from the top to the bottom. So by the time they've done the last bottle, it's possible that some of those uh, wine bottles might have a significant amount of sediment at, in them. So just make sure when you're checking, you know, your amphora made wines, uh, make sure you check the bottom to see how much sediment is there before you start pouring because you might want to decant it. Exactly. And bring this back onto the specifically the orange wine topic, I guess a couple other places that they're doing a lot of skin contact, I guess, would be like northern Italy, uh, the Slovenia, Slovenia area. Emilia-Romagna, yeah. right? 
Emilia Romagna yeah, is pretty famous for it, but really, like, I would say the second epicenter of it be- beyond Georgia is definitely that, like, Slovenia-Italian border. There's obviously Sasa Radikon there, um, which is technically in Italy, but I believe he is Slovenian or, you know, of Slovenian descent. Um, and, yeah, the Slovenians are definitely very well known for making orange wine. You can obviously now find it in France and uh, Spain and all over, uh, but traditionally those, I would say, are the two even when it wasn't in style, those places have been making it forever. Cool. So what's next? All right. So we talked a little bit at the beginning about how it's made. And we obviously talked a bit in the last podcast about the difference between orange wine and rosé. Um, so we got some feedback from a few producers uh, with posting our infographic on Instagram. And I just want to give a little bit more context in this podcast than we're able to in a quick infographic because as with anything in winemaking uh it's easy to basically generalize what happens but there are obviously uh, a lot of nuances and decisions that the producer gets to make throughout so i just want to walk through that process and kind of point out the areas where um, producers do make different types of decisions and how it would affect the wine cool so we're on the infographic right now yeah Okay, so basically, no matter what you're doing, you're starting with a white grape. Um, One note on that, I guess, if you think about Pinot Gris, which is kind of like a pink grape, and if you let that one sit on the skins, it kind of makes like a crazy-looking rosé, but technically it's still orange, or I guess... Skin contact white. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So you start with the white grapes, you harvest them, and then from there you press them or you let them sit on the skins yeah so this is definitely an area where um you can make some decisions so you can either directly go in and press the grapes you can let them like some people will pigage them which is basically when you take your feet i love lucy style and stomp on them that's not the same thing as pressing pressing would be you put it in the press you really scrunch it down um so there's a couple different ways and styles of people basically extracting some of the juice uh, from the grape and letting it touch either just the skins or like we said earlier the skins and the stems Um, so that's one area and the longer you let it sit like that the more orange it's going to become the more tannin it's going to extract if you add that stem in there it's going to extract even more uh, as you would say stemmy tannins basically so that's really one stylistic area that the producer needs to decide before exactly and after that is when you let it sit in some kind of vessel so like we were talking about at the top of this pod uh you could use something like a clay vessel like an amphora or a fevery um you could also obviously use something like stainless steel that would probably be the most common one i would say um for kind of letting that stuff sit and chill and mix and get all nice and orangey i've never heard of one being put into new oak that doesn't mean it doesn't exist it would be a very interesting flavor profile but yeah like nick said the most likely ones to find would be like an amphora uh, then stainless steel, then maybe like neutral oak. Oh, also, I guess maybe um, fiberglass is possible too. But yeah, I have not, true. I don't think I've seen any, none of our producers are putting it in fiberglass. And then after it spends X amount of time on it, like Nick said, anywhere from a couple of hours to um, one of our wines called Flor de Mata, I believe, sits on its skins for two years in an open amphora. Pretty crazy. Um, the skins are removed, and that's when you're basically, the 
able to decide, you know, what type of color do I want this wine to have? How much extraction do I want it to receive from these uh, grapes? And that's when you can, you know, it could either just have a tiny hint of orange or it could go all the way to being incredibly amber and a deep orange color. Exactly. Um, And then after that is when you would want to uh, maybe filter it, maybe not, kind of up to the producer, obviously, and bottle it. So um, it's racking, right? So racking is basically if you have like a bunch of lees or whatever, you know, yeasty, dead yeast, basically, in the vessel, um, then you would want to rack it, which is basically like letting letting gravity do the work for you right yeah so instead of putting the wine through a like filtration system where it has to go through you know another diatomaceous earth or something um to get the sediment out it's a lot more natural way to do it where they basically just move it from one vessel to another and in doing so a lot of the sediment is left in the previous vessel so that's how it's made and uh sometimes you find them in the um uh clay is it clay or no ceramic sometimes you find them in ceramic uh bottles instead of glass bottles i would say that's a little bit more common with the orange wines than we've seen with others but otherwise it's pretty much looking like your regular wine on the shelf and if you didn't know to ask for it or um didn't really ask about the wine it's still going to be labeled as a white wine in the u.s there's no category in the ttb for orange wine so just Note that when you see it, it's going to say white on the back and it will likely not be white. Yeah, we've had a couple of funny surprises where we've opened a couple of bottles that we thought were going to be white and they were not. Which is great for us, but if you yeah. don't like orange wine, that's a bit of a bummer. So uh, you got to do a little bit of research. All right. And then finally, let's talk about, or I guess not finally, sorry, there's two more things. Um, why you haven't heard of it and why it's associated most of the time with the natural wine movement. Um, So we hinted at it a bit earlier with the uh, people in Georgia and the way they're making orange wine. And it obviously had a time frame where it was just not made at all. Um, And I don't really know that there was any time in recent history that I can imagine where orange wine was popular. Uh, It's basically, I would like to think it's kind of like the up and coming rosé movement. Rosé became really popular, I think, like three decades ago, maybe a little bit before that. And uh, decade by decade, it's become more popular. Everyone thinks it's a trend, but it's really just growing as a category. And uh, orange wine is teeny tiny in comparison. There is not It's not that well known, um, but I do believe that it's going to get a larger grip because I think red wine drinkers are interested in having... Um, this type of style because it is something that they can more relate to and goes with a lot of different foods they wouldn't be able to uh, pair their red wines with as easily. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for whatever reason, I think we'll probably talk about this natural or orange wine is closely, in my opinion, closely the the growth of of orange wine is pretty closely related to the growth of natural wine. And I think that as people are getting more and more into drinking natural wines they're getting more and more into discovering you know lesser known grape varieties or lesser known styles and thus i think that orange wine is becoming more mainstream uh together with natural wine yeah and there's a couple of reasons for that one obviously georgian old historic like natural wine making is a movement to go back to the way wine was made before commercialization and we started putting pesticides and all these things 
it's a lot older than the way we think of wine now. But then a couple other things um, about the winemaking style are actually really great for natural wine, which is skin contact actually helps stabilize a wine. So there's a few things you can do. Um, you know, you can obviously add sulfur that helps stabilize a wine. Um, you can let it have lees contact where it stays with its yeasts. That helps keep the wine stable and is more likely to remain clean and delicious for a long time. And then skin contact does the same thing. That's why it's actually um, a bit easier to make a natural red wine than to make a clean natural white wine because it doesn't have that skin contact. So it doesn't have that added layer of kind of like protection, basically. Um, so that's another reason why it's easy to put orange wine in the natural wine category because it's essentially like a natural way to preserve that white wine. Well put. Thanks. So where can you find this so-called orange wine, skin contact, white, amber wine, whatever you want to call it? It's a bit tricky to find, and even Nick and I struggle with it. A funny quick aside, we went to Sevilla a couple weeks ago with Nick's parents, and um, we saw a giant bottle that said orange wine, and we were like, wow, it's so mainstream here in Sevilla. This is awesome. And then we uh, were talking with this, we were on a food tour, talking with the tour guide, and she goes, oh, no, that is not actually uh, orange wine as you <laughs> know it. It was, what was it? It was like a fizzy wine drink that yeah, had orange added exactly. to it. Something weird. So just make sure you ask. Uh, we like to think that, you know, if it says orange wine, it's going to be what we expect. But half the world that doesn't know what this type of orange wine is, is honestly probably expecting a fizzy bubble orange soda type drink. For sure. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, if you're in a medium large city, I imagine that there is a wine store or wine bar that will have an orange wine if you ask for it. Yeah, so it's very well aligned with the natural wine movement, and you can basically most likely find it uh, any place if they serve natural wine or they're focused on natural wine, uh, it would be very likely that you would find an orange wine there. Exactly. Uh, that being said, you can also uh, look online. For example, on our shop. You, what? <laughs> we've got like eight, I think, right now. Yeah, I th some of them, uh, they're honestly one of our quickest selling ones. I think we are sold out of at least one or two right now. Um, and we're working to get more uh, soon because people are in love with them. Exactly. And if you haven't tried one, we would definitely, definitely recommend checking it out, especially like Holly mentioned, if you like reds. Um, I think that it's, if you like reds and don't like whites, I think it's a pretty good middle ground for you to start trying something new. Um, if you love orange wines, but have only tried something like, you know, Italian, uh, maybe look into Spain, you know, they're doing lots of different stuff there as well. So there's a lot of different ways that you can make it and a lot of different places that you can find it using different grapes. And, uh, I think that, you know, just within that small category, there's a ton to, uh, discover. And I'll put in the show notes after this uh, the link to this blog because we also have a resources section that goes into a lot of detail of the orange wine books we love to read, the blogs, other podcasts you can listen to. There's honestly not that much out there on orange wine, which is why we keep talking about it because uh, it's a little bit difficult to find information that isn't in a book. So everything that we know, we've put out there for you to learn as well. And I think that's pretty good for now. If you were interested in learning more, go check out those resources. If you have another topic you want us to talk about, let us know. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.